1999, and I lived there until the summer of 2004, and those were great years to be in a great city. Uh, among other significant things that happened during my time in St. Louis, I met my wife, which I meant to mention this morning. Today is our 12-year anniversary. Of course, she's not here tonight for me to call her out on that, but it was a really great time in St. Louis. Uh, that was where I was for seminary. That's where I met her, and our relationship developed there. Another relationship developed while I was in St. Louis from 99 to 2004, and that was a relationship with the St. Louis Cardinals. I'd always been a fan of Major League Baseball and had some uh, liking uh, of the Cardinals, but being there during those years really uh, made me smitten uh, with the Cardinals and uh, with Major League Baseball. And so ever since that time, I've been an avid follower of the Cardinals. I've gotten to go to many of their playoff games and had uh, been in attendance at uh, the 2006 World Series. So when 2011 rolled around and the Cardinals were in the World Series, again, I was, of course, excited. And I had some opportunities early in the series to potentially go to a game in St. Louis, and it just wasn't panning out. And now that uh, Game 6 uh, was upon the Cardinals as they were playing the Texas Rangers, they were down by one in Game 6 as far as down in the, in the series. Uh, by one game in Game 6 playing in St. Louis, I was watching here in Knoxville, uh, on my TV, and, and as the game went on, the Cardinals were basically perpetually behind. They had gotten fallen behind five times, in fact, in game six. Um, and at two different points uh, in the game, uh, the Cardinals, uh, first in the bottom of the ninth, uh, were down two outs, two strikes, one strike left, and they were losing. And they were delivered by David Fries uh, with a great double. Uh, to tie the game, goes into extra innings. Uh, Texas comes back at this point and goes back ahead. St. Louis comes again with a two-run single uh, and goes back to tie it up. And then in the 11th inning, the first batter, David Freeze, who had already delivered the Cardinals in the bottom of the ninth when they were down to one strike, uh, hits a leadoff home run, and the Cardinals exit game six, headed for game seven. Anybody that was watching that game which has gone down as one of the greatest World Series games in history. No team had ever been down to their last strike twice. No team had ever been down five different times in a game to come back and win. No team had ever scored in the 8th, ninth, 10th, and 11th innings in a World Series game ever. Uh, everybody that was gripped by this game, and particularly Cardinals fans like me, especially because I had a ticket to Game 7, if we won, uh, were cheering for the Cardinals and cheering for a deliverer to come and to bring us into tomorrow. The Cardinals' star first baseman, who is sadly no longer with them, Albert Pujols, said after the game, there is tomorrow now for us. And this really is the mantra of God's people. There is tomorrow for us now. Because God has ultimately delivered his people from death, which is, of course, much more significant than being delivered by being behind in a World Series baseball game. God has delivered his people. And because of that, there is now tomorrow for us as his people in the next day, in the next day, in the next. Among many things that Exodus 14 
is teaching us. There's so many different aspects of this narrative we could pull out. I really want us to focus on the reality that God is glorified by rescuing his people. Did you catch that throughout the narrative, at least at three different points, that God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh? Well, how will God get glory according to Exodus 14? God gets glory by delivering his people. God is glorified when he rescues his people. And this is another thing, and if you've heard me say this once, you've heard me say it other times as well. God rescues and delivers his people initially and continually. This is the pattern through which God works with his people. The gospel is not something that is simply for those who don't believe. The gospel is something that saves initially, and the gospel is something that grows us continually. And part of this gospel message is, or one way to summarize the gospel message is, is that God is glorified in rescuing his people. I love to think about God as the rescuer. It's one of the many things I love about Sally Lloyd-Jones' Jesus Storybook Bible. I trust that some of you have seen this, particularly with children. You don't need to have children, by the way, to really uh, you know, plumb the depths and the riches that are in this children, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a children's Bible. Um, in her translation, and, and of course she's paraphrasing great narratives throughout Scripture, she continually speaks of and refers to God and specifically to Jesus as the rescuer. God has rescued his people here in Exodus 14 after 400 years of slavery, yet he's going to need to rescue them again. They have been delivered from Pharaoh, yet Pharaoh at this point realizes maybe it wasn't such a good idea to let Israel go. I'm coming after them. And really, once again, this is indicative so much of our own lives. Just because we have been delivered ultimately from the snare of death unto salvation does not mean that we are not still being pursued by the enemy. Does not mean that we are not still being pursued by sin and brokenness, even our own sin and brokenness in this world. Yet God, yet again, rescues his people. Rescuing is God's specialty. God is glorified by redeeming and rescuing his people. I like the contemporary worship song that I'm sure some of you are familiar with by Matt Redman, entitled simply, You Alone Can Rescue. Who, O Lord, could save themselves? Their own soul could heal. Our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace is deeper still. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can lift us from the grave. You came down to find us to lead us out of death, to you alone belongs the highest praise. God is a rescuer of his people. However, it's very easy for us initially and continually to live by sight and not by faith. It's one thing to say here tonight that God rescues his people. It's another thing to affirm that God is a rescuer and a redeemer of his people Yet it's another thing to really live as if we believe this truth. Because you see, it's so easy in our own lives, particularly when we look at external circumstances, to start to doubt and question whether God really will deliver us or whether God really has delivered us. It's so easy for our fears to rise within. So we've got external circumstances on the outside that are unfavorable in our lives. 
things are not going the way we want them to, which is, if we're honest, probably more days than not, right? Um, We look at those circumstances. We look at the relationships in our lives. We look at our job. We look at our children. We look at our relationships. We look at the world at large, and we view circumstances, and it's easy for doubt to arise within us if we live by sight and not by faith. It's easy for us to question, will God really save us? Has God really saved me? If God had saved me, would this be happening? Or we have these fears, as I said, within us, and at this point, our beliefs in God's sovereignty are really tested. Our belief in God's power and His deliverance is really tested. I came across recently a a quote that I um, initially found years and years ago when I was new uh, to some of the Reformed doctrines. I had been a Christian for a while, but I was starting to really revel in the beauty of God's sovereignty. And I came across this great quote by Charles Spurgeon when he says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of sere leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He that believes in a God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. There is no halfway between a mighty God that worketh all things by the sovereign counsel of His will and no God at all. A God that cannot do as He pleases, a God whose will is frustrated, is not a God and cannot be a God. I cannot believe in such a God as that. That's a robust view of God's sovereignty one that most, if not all of us here this evening, would resonate deeply with. Yet that view of God's sovereignty is tested in our lives day in and day out when things do not go the way we want them to go. Well, in Exodus 14, needless to say, things were not going the way God's people wanted them to go. And they start to question and they start to doubt. And they look at their circumstances externally and they feel their fears internally. And then they start to ask the same questions we ask. So we look a little more in depth in this passage tonight as we think about the overarching idea that God loves to rescue His people. That God is glorified in rescuing His people. I want us to look at Israel's fear I want us to look at Moses' leadership in this narrative, and I want us to end with really appreciating God's power. So Israel's fear, Moses' leadership, and ultimately uh, ending with God's power over uh, all under the overarching idea that God is glorified in rescuing His people. Now verses 10 through 12, that's what I want to draw your attention to here in Exodus 14. You understand that they were in bondage and slavery under Pharaoh. There's a lot of back and forth between Pharaoh and God. Finally, Pharaoh relents, releases God's people. They're scot-free, or so they think. Uh, As they're out, Pharaoh starts to reconsider. He's having second guesses at this point, and he's thinking, wait a minute, I used to have all these people working for me, now I don't have them working for me. Uh, Let's go get them. 
And Pharaoh starts to approach. Uh, and verse 10 is where we pick up at that point. I want to reread verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes. So they saw, and I want you to think about kind of this paradigm that goes on here, because while this is literally obviously talking about what was happening in this historical event, once again, this is so indicative, I think, of our lives. And, and I think it's safe and fine to say um, that we all have pharaohs in our life, right? We all have those people, some of them people, those things uh, within and without us that seek to capture us, that seek to enslave us, that seek to ensnare us. And so these people are seeing Pharaoh coming out of it, and they lift up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And after that, the people cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have come to take us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, I don't know if I'm the only one that finds this somewhat humorous. Uh, these kind of questions. They're at. Not only do I find them humorous, I actually find them searingly uh, indicative of my own life. Uh, when things are not going the way I want them to. So the paradigm in, in verse 10 is simply this. They see, they fear, and they cry out. They see, they fear, and they cry out. And then in verse 11, they take this crying out a little bit further. And at this point, once again, I feel like what the, what the Israelites are experiencing at this point is powerlessness. The text doesn't tell us this. But it's very clear at this point they're not in control. Do you like to be in control? I do. What is it like when you're not in control? Do you start to get fearful? Do you start to cry out? Maybe you start to blame. It's one of my go-to tactics, by the way, which is not the most conducive for a healthy marriage, I'll say, when things are not going the way they're supposed to. Or, or maybe and... You ever revert to cynicism, right? You feel powerless. Things are not the way you want them to go. You see these things not going the way you want them to go. You feel fear. You cry out. You blame, and then you just become cynical. Do you see the Israelites doing that? You bet we do. They see Pharaoh coming. They feel fear. They cry, what in the world's going on here? Moses, it's a huge mistake. God, ultimately. This is a mistake. Really, at this point, they are without question questioning his sovereignty. Do you? I mean, the text doesn't say this, but surely it's okay to assume they are basically saying, do you know what you're doing? And they look at Moses and they're like, why did you do this? This is your fault. I mean, we're stuck here. There's this water. It's a hard place. And there's this rock named Pharaoh that's coming. And we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And of course, if they're in a bad position, just like if I'm in a bad position, probably just like if you're in a bad position, it's not their fault. Right? It's always somebody else's fault. Moses! Why did you bring us here? And then to just find a way to deal with some of their fear and discomfort, um, they turn to cynicism which I think we do as well so often. We don't know how to deal with 
uncomfortable situations where there is nothing left to do except to trust God? And after the blaming other people doesn't work, what do they do? Oh, I know. This is great, Moses. I know what you've done. There were not enough graves in Egypt. That's why you brought us here. All the graves in Egypt were taken up. I get it now, Moses. You actually thought it would be great if we died here and were buried here. Just make everything better. That, that was the idea. Well, I mean, really, why did you go through all the trouble? Now, understand, and I hope this, understand that I'm ad libbing some of this, but I think this is important for us to get where they were and what it would have been like. Because once again, I believe this particular narrative to be indicative of our lives continually. And there are some situations in life that are more profound and more sensational and, 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 and bigger issues like this. And then there are small battles every day where we're stuck, figuratively speaking, between Pharaoh and the Red Sea. And by the way, and this is good news or bad news, I don't know how you want to take it. I think God is perpetually seeking to bring us to these kind of places. God is perpetually seeking to bring you to bring me and putting us between a rock and a hard place where there's nothing we can do except wait on him. God is perpetually and continually and normatively bringing us to places of powerlessness. Which, by the way, is a little bit different than our mission in life. My mission in life, I'll confess, is to find Angles and avenues, relationships, etc., so I can get in places of power and control. Yet I believe that God's mission normatively with His people throughout the Scriptures and in our own lives is to bring us to places where we are powerless so He can show Himself to be powerful. And that's what He's doing here with Israel. And then in verse 12, this thing kind of continues... They basically say, look, we didn't want to do this in the first place. This is exactly why we did not want to leave Egypt. Now, here's the deal. Egypt was pretty miserable. I mean, we were slaves after all. But you know what? We were comfortable there. We knew what to expect there. How much is that like us? I know there's a slogan among those in recovery in the AA world that would talk about essentially saying, I know it might be hell, but at least we know the street names. And so that really is so true of God's people. Look, look, it was, it was hellacious for us to be in bondage to Pharaoh and to be enslaved there. However, we were comfortable there. We knew what to expect. We had kind of become accustomed actually to being slaves. And in verse 12, what we see is they're not real comfortable with freedom. Because this is actually not how they pictured freedom. This is not actually how they pictured redemption or rescue or salvation, if they were really honest. They didn't realize between slavery and the promised land there was going to be this stuff called life. And so we see the people's fear And we see them having to come to grips with this hard reality. They were in this place for one reason. God put them there. 
that's hard. Are you willing to submit to the reality that your life is where God wants you? Your life in total and your life specifically in particular moments, day by day. These are the places that God wants you. These are the places where God has placed you. And oftentimes these places are places that are not comfortable. These places are places where there's one option. To ask God to deliver and show His power. So these people, the Israelites in this day, they cry out to God through Moses. And then Moses picks up in verse 13. Moses said to his people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. I don't think it would be an inaccurate paraphrase. It would be a, not a word-for-word -word translation in verse 13 if Moses started out by saying, Be quiet. Shh. Do not fear. Be still. Stand firm. God will fight for you. God will deliver you. Here's all you have to do. It's actually something kind of simple, but it's probably the hardest thing for you to do. Be still. Be silent. God's people, at least evidenced by the first part of this narrative, were maybe not so strong or good at being still and silent. They had pretty quick feet. I think they had pretty loose tongues. Do you have quick feet and a loose tongue, particularly when things don't go your way? See, I actually think, in a strange way, God is calling us in Exodus 14 through Moses' leadership to have heavy feet. I have a friend that talks about having heavy feet and how that creates a light heart. But so often when we are thrown into adverse circumstances, things don't go the way we want them to go. Someone says something that we disagree with. We're put into a place, position at work, or put into a position in a particular relationship, and it's not what we like. And our fight or flight reaction starts to take place. And what do we do at that moment? So often, our heart gets heavy, our chest gets full, and our feet start to become quick to get us out of this situation. And our tongue often at that point starts to become loose, and we just start talking trying to get out of the situation and Moses is saying stop talking stop moving this is not about you and your fight this is God and his fight watch him it's so much easier and natural for us not to wait and to watch and to let someone else fight but this is what this truth is what a relationship with God is precipitated upon. It's about Him. It's not about us. It's about Him normatively putting us in places that are challenging and hard and even places we don't want to be so He can show up and fight for us and deliver us. I don't know what those places are for you right now in your life, but I know you have those places. 
we all stand in those places tonight. And the question is, are we going to stand in those places and be still and be silent and ask God to show up and to let God fight for us? Israel had an extremely difficult time with this. Chances are you do too. A verse that I honestly pray almost every morning. In fact, I've started praying it more recently, even before I get out of bed. It's from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. And it's God speaking to his people. And he's saying, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But then the verse goes on and says, But you would have none of it. And then he goes on to a pretty typical indictment, unfortunately, of his people. But that really is our verse as God's people. That is what God is calling. That's what Moses, God is calling his people to do through Moses. As Moses really is exhibiting excellent leadership. And we don't have time to get into all the details of that tonight. But in fact, many scholars would point to Moses throughout the um, narrative of, of the book of Exodus uh, as an excellent example of leadership. And this moment really proves it not to be perfect, but for Moses' leadership to be effective and sufficient. Uh, because Moses himself has been led by God, by the way. He is able to lead others, which is also good for us to know. We can never lead other people where we have not been or where we are not going. Do you get that? Various writers that have said this in various ways. But the general idea is this. We cannot lead other people where we have not been or where we are not going. Think about this as you think about the different aspects of leadership in your life. Particularly you adults in here this evening. You are in places of leadership in your home, in your relationships, in your places of work in your communities, in this church. And we need to hear that we cannot lead other people in places, in two places, where we have not been or where we are not going. If Moses, for example, had not wrestled with God in his own difficult places, then there's no way Moses would be able to help God's people who are wrestling with him in this difficult place. In many ways, Moses can speak with authority and with confidence. Not because he has figured it all out, but because he has truly been there. And he can speak in a way that is authentic. And he can tell them, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. These things are so counterintuitive, yet it's what... Moses is telling God's people, and it's what God is telling his people. It's what God is telling us tonight. So we see God being glorified as he rescues his people, even as we look at Israel's fear, which we can re relate very poignantly with, as we see Moses' leadership, which we can really commend by God's grace and honestly seek to emulate on various levels, not only in this narrative, but much broader than even this story itself. But then also I want us to see God's power as he actually does this miracle, as he parts this water. One of the things that I've noticed recently in reading 
this story. I mean, I've read it for years and just more recently started to want to do some more in-depth study on the book of Exodus and then really, uh, at least for me, center upon this particular chapter throughout the book, really keep being drawn to this. But we see, uh, you know, in verses 20 through 22 um, that Israel was encamped along the shore. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Pharaoh is coming towards them. There's water. So Pharaoh on the one side, water on the other side. And then God starts to bring this cloud, right, of his presence and this cloud of fire. And then the text tells us that God starts to bring about a wind. And so I don't know what you've thought about this narrative before, but I think I've always kind of assumed prior to looking a little more obviously at it that God did some sort of like proverbial snap of his fingers and the water just parted instantaneously. But actually what the text seems to indicate to us And since we take this literally, that this actually happened, and that this is the Red Sea that we're actually talking about. I mean, most scholars believe that this was the northern part of the Red Sea. I mean, the Red Sea was different widths at different places. It was different depths at different places. There's various people, even um, those that would seek to uphold the, the witness of Scripture, that would say it actually was not the Red Sea. It was the Reed Sea, and there was this lake. And they basically try to minimize it a little bit, but... Many conservative and orthodox scholars say, no, it's actually the Red Sea. It's probably this particular part of the Red Sea. But they're encamped along the sea at this point, and the wind starts to blow. And it blows all night long. Can you imagine what it would have been like? I mean, this is where I think in order to really capture particularly stories in Scripture, we need to use our imagination We need to put ourselves in this story. You've been on the bank of a sea before, haven't you? Or a large lake. I was just in Chicago two weeks ago. Think about Lake Michigan. What would it be like to be on that sand with a lot of people? There's a lot of debate, by the way, how many people exodus together. Um, Many would say figures could point to close to 2 million people. Others would highly disagree with that number, but that's not our purpose tonight. But a lot of people on the sand, on the banks of this sea, overnight in the dark, with Pharaoh and his army waiting to kill them on one side, and a massive wind blowing all night long. So much so to the extent that this wind is starting to make the waters which could be as deep as 600 feet at this point, we don't know for sure, well up on the left and the right throughout the night. So it's one of these deals, I think, that what the text is telling us, and you can you know, tell me if you see otherwise afterwards, that this was a progressive act of God's power throughout the night. That wind howling, and do you think the water was silent when it was building these walls? I don't think so. Do you think the people were dry as this was happening? Probably not. I mean, ultimately they crossed on dry ground, but they had this wet, loud, fearful night on the shore as they were waiting for God to deliver them and to show forth his power. How scary, how amazing How fearful, how thrilling, how indicative of our life. Is it not? 
in many, many ways, we live on this bank. We live in that wind. We live witnessing and being around God's power, which is good but frightening. And we see God show forth His power and His glory. Why? Because He loves His people. And then we see Moses lead and God's people follow the next morning through the sea, which I'm sure, by the way, was pretty muddy, onto dry ground, relatively speaking, on the other side. And then we see Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. By the way, even think about that image, the water closing in on them, and then when they look back at the sea, they just saw him floating. What would it have been like to see chariots and horses and men floating in this big jumble of water? And then the text ends in verse 31 by telling us this. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. You know why they were able to see that, by the way? Because they stopped looking at Pharaoh. And they stopped looking at the sea that they couldn't cross. And they stopped looking within themselves. And they actually saw the Lord and His glory and His power. So much so that the people feared no longer Pharaoh. No longer did they fear the sea. No longer did they fear these circumstances. What did they fear? The only right thing for God's people to fear. They feared the Lord. And rightfully so. If you had just seen that, I think you would be in awe. And they believed in the Lord. And they believed in His servant, Moses. For now, unfortunately, this belief was shaky very soon after the end of this narrative. But at this one moment, they believed and had great faith. In the Lord, I'll end with a few just questions for you to leave with that are meant to be questions of application that correlate with the points that we saw tonight in Israel's sphere, Moses' leadership, and God's power. What are ways in your life that tempt you to undo your salvation? Now, I don't mean literally. I believe in Philippians 1, verse 6, that he has began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. However, there are things that regularly threaten the salvation that we have already received and live in. Not threaten to take it away from us, but threaten us to not live in it. Just like Israel here, Pharaoh had let God's people go. God had delivered them, yet he was seeking to undo. That is, Pharaoh was seeking to undo the salvation that God had brought upon his people. What in your life seeks to undo the salvation that God has brought upon you? Is it your doubts? Is it your fears? Is it unhealthy relationships? Is it indwelling sin? Is it you fill in the blank? But we all battle with things that seek to undo the salvation that God has brought upon us. Another question. What do you do when you feel powerless? When you feel out of control? I've talked a little bit about that tonight, but I think it would be good for you. I don't know how many journalers I have out there. Those of you that journal, this would be a great question to write and to seek to answer. What do I do when I feel powerless, when I feel out of control? If you don't want to write it, just think about it. On your way to work in the morning, maybe on your way home tonight. Better yet, 
ask this question in some sort of community, whether it be the community of you and your spouse or community of friends or community of your family. What do you do when you feel powerless? And how does that square with what God calls us to, particularly in verses 11 or 10 through 13? And then lastly, how might you practice standing firm, being still and silent and watching God fight for you? How might you practice in your daily life standing firm, being still and silent and watching God fight for you? I'm going to close this in prayer. Father, thank you yet again for another great story. Not just a great story that we could learn when we're young, kind of marvel at what you might have done there, but I pray that this story would become more real to us. I pray that this story we would really participate in. For one, that we would have a better grasp of what it might have been like for your people there that night along the banks of that sea in great fear and great noise, getting wet by the wind the waves and the water. What might it have been like for them and then what might it have been like the next morning? I pray that you would help us to do that, not only with this passage, but with more passages in your word. But also pray, Father, that you would help us to ask these questions that I think this text begs of us. We pray that you would gently and graciously help us to examine our hearts, our minds, and our lives, and we pray that you would redeem and transform us. Ultimately, Father, we do pray that you would find glory by showing forth your power, and by rescuing and delivering your people. We are so grateful that you find delight and glory in rescuing us because we need it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll stand, we'll sing a hymn of response.